Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Lydia Finette, the author of the book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, Command an Audience and Sell Your Way to Success. Lydia works for Christie's Auction House. By day, she plans huge events for them, and by night, she is a charity auctioneer. As she says, she auctions off things that nobody wants for huge amounts of money and helps raise funds for important causes. Whether she's on stage with Bruce Springsteen or Uma Thurman or Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, she has to always be at the top of her game. Really excited to ask Lydia about her best tips for developing confident, motivated, energetic teenage girls and boys who know what they want and know how to go out and get it. We're going to talk about how to help your teen prepare for a big event, how to get them better at failing and trying out even if they're not going to get in, and what to do when your teen won't stop complaining about something. And we're going to hear what she did when she was on stage with Matt Damon and he called her the wrong name. All of that and much more coming up today on the show. Lydia, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Talk to me about what the inspiration was for this book and um, what, you know, was this something that you had for a long time wanted to write um, or is it something that just sort of came to you and um, what was your journey in creating it? So I am a charity auctioneer for Christie's Auction House in New York. And I've been a charity auctioneer since I was in my early 20s. And being a charity auctioneer is a little bit different than what you might see in a movie for an auctioneer. Because people always think of sort of an older British gentleman in black tie, running down a gavel and selling a Picasso for millions of dollars. But charity auctioneering is really done to raise money for nonprofits. So I typically go on stage late at night and I'm usually selling something that no one really wants, right? So I get on stage, (laughs) you know, they've given me a puppy to sell at the school auction or they've given me someone's grandmother's quilt and they just think that I'm selling. And so that ends up being my nights, most nights of the week if we're not in the middle of a global pandemic. And one funny thing that I noticed was before I would get on stage or after I would get off stage at the end of the night, there was always a woman, a young woman who would come up to me and say, you know, I could never do that. I I just, I'm so bad at selling. I'm so bad at selling myself. I just get so embarrassed. And what if they say no? And it was always some semblance of 15 different thoughts thrown at me, but it always sounded kind of like that. Okay. And I grew up in the South 
you know, I grew up in Louisiana and my mother is British. So I like to say that I don't really come from a culture where women are told to ask for things all the time. And I really wanted to understand how I got this confidence. And, and I wanted to understand how I could show other people what I had learned, because I think it's learned. I don't think it's necessarily innate. And that's really where this book came from. You know, the stories start early in my life. I talk about something as simple as something we can all relate to. The first time I felt that smack in the face of failure. You know, I tried out for an acapella singing group. I had sung in the school choir my whole life. And it sounds like such a simple thing, but I didn't get it. And I was crushed. And I was at boarding school in Connecticut. I wasn't near my parents at the time. And I was hysterically crying. And I thought my world was going to end. And the next year I went back to try out again and I had laryngitis and I didn't get it again <laughs> because I had laryngitis and it was so crushing. And again, you know, with perspective and age, you look back on something that seems so simple, yeah. So we all remember what that first failure like felt like as a teen. And so I started each of my stories with something when I was younger and then showcase what they look like on a grand scale, you know, standing on stage in front of a thousand people when something goes terribly awry and how do you recover from that? And so that's really what this book is about. It's about finding your voice and finding confidence. Very cool. And you have kind of broken it up into a series of lessons. And I'm curious where you, where you decided on what were sort of the lessons that you wanted to teach in this book. They were really themes in my life that I had seen time and time again. And actually a lot of them came from my dad. So I know if there are parents who are listening to this, you'll be happy to know that actually kids do listen to their parents. <laughs> um, certainly my dad used to always say things like, Lydia, you are what you negotiate, which means nothing when you're 10, but when you get into the workforce and you realize you're getting paid a half of what other people are getting paid, you start to understand that you do actually have to negotiate for yourself. And there were little things like that, that over the course of my life, I remembered and wanted to share with people. So those really became how those chapters were formed, you know, talking about you are what you negotiate, um, really talking about pay and how important it is to understand money at an early age. Because again, that's something that I think a lot of people just never really think to teach their children. They assume that they'll either figure it out or maybe they get it by osmosis. But those are things that you learn them when you're young they are building blocks for the rest of your life and they set you up for success. So each of those chapters was meant to give people ideas for things that they could do to control their life and command their voice. One thing that you said was kind of a breakthrough for you was um, kind of getting rid of this persona that you thought you had to um, embody when you were on stage and um, really learning how to sell as yourself. Uh, so I wonder, like, um, you know, how did that come about? Where did that, how did that lesson come to you? And um, how do you think we can teach that to other people? I think selling as yourself and just being yourself is one of those things that you find with confidence. And as I said at the beginning of this, when I thought about auctioneering, which frankly, I didn't think about until college because I never heard of auctioneering until I was in college. And most people probably have never heard of auctioneering. But when it came into my sort of thought process or the world that I was living in, I realized that every time I saw someone who was an auctioneer, they were always older and they were always 
a gentleman. They were always yeah. in black tie and they were 99% of the time British. <laughs> and I, the time when I tried out to be an auctioneer was 24. I am American, although my mom is British, but I have an American accent and I was never dressed in black tie because I don't wear tuxedos. And obviously on top of all of that, I was a young woman. And so yeah. my natural inclination was to immediately try to be what I had seen in front of me always. And so I would always dress in a black suit, which was as close to a tuxedo as I could find. And I would emulate kind of a weird hybrid British accent that never quite sounded right. And I felt so uncomfortable in my skin. Yeah. And what I realized many years into taking auctions, and I talk in the book about this one sort of formative moment where I was really, really sick and got on stage and through a series of events, just found my voice. And I think that we have to be, and I think we're much better as a society right now of realizing that there are different ways to do everything, right? Just because we've seen one person do it one way doesn't mean that it always has to be done that way. And I do think it, as a parent myself with my children, you know, if I see something where it's only been done in a certain way, I always say to my kids, just because you see it like that doesn't mean that that's the only way it can be done. In fact, you could come up with a different way and do it just as successfully. Yeah. Different doesn't mean bad. Different means different. And so, um, is that just like, uh, takes time to find you think, or, um, and just encouraging, uh, encouraging kids to experiment is the main thing or, um, what can parents do to sort of, uh, help them along on that journey? Yeah. I think that, you know, never thinking of a certain path for each of your children is a really good way to empower them to live the life they want to live. I have a lot of friends whose parents took a very different parenting approach than my parents. My parents were sort of like, if you want to try this, we will get behind you. You know, you want to be a scuba driving instructor. Let's see how that goes. Okay. Yeah. You don't like that. All right. Next thing. So, you know, they always let us try it. And if we hated it, then we never did it again. And if we liked it, there was encouragement to do it, but there was never a roadblock thrown in front of us where we couldn't at least try to fail. And, you know, I talk about that acapella singing group, but I didn't say in the story I tell the most powerful woman in the room is you is I was 13, you know, in a new boarding school. I didn't really know anyone. And I had always been a joiner. My parents were like, do everything you can play basketball, do ballet, do volleyball. It was like, do anything you want. I was never good at any of those things, but I did them all. And I went to this highly competitive boarding school and I arrived and everybody was so good at everything. And I was so mediocre at everything. But I tried out for 11 things my freshman year. And wow. I remember one of the teachers saying to me, you've just never seen anyone who can just fail with such grace. And I always laugh at that because I played on a basketball team in middle school that never won a game in four years. And we lost 50 to two. It wasn't even close. We only had five players. So, you know, it's just, it's the odds were not good. And we were playing these massive schools and we had, yep. you know, 12 kids in my class. And they're right. I can fail along with the best of them and it bounces right off of me. Mm. And as I've, as I've gotten older, I've realized that that's actually the greatest gift you can give yeah, a kid. Right. Let them fall, you know? And my parents, every time would say, you know, Lydia, that was a tough loss, but we think next time you're going to do it. I, like, <laughs> I think so too. My, you're so, you're so right. Next time is the game. Uh, 48 to two. Uh, next time is the game. Lydia. I think so too. You know. <laughs> What a great quality to have in life that just, it doesn't stop you because you yeah, know, that fear right. of failure, just that fear of being imperfect is what stops so many kids from trying to do so many things that they're going to want to do over the course of their life. And so I think as a parent, 
take that, take that advice from Bob and Sally, just let them fail and let them fail regularly because over time they get used to it and they're not scared to try. You talked about negotiating and there's a great chapter in the book about this. You have three tips in here um, about um, negotiating and a couple of them I thought are really, really important. One was lose the emotion and one is don't apologize. Um, why are these uh, so important for negotiating and how can we apply them? Well, I think this really speaks to women more than anything, because I've been a boss of so many women over the course of my life. And the first thing they do is apologize for what they're about to ask for. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I find myself doing it. Oh, I'm sorry that I'm asking for this yeah, instead right. of just here's, here's the ask. And I have two brothers who never do that. And so it was one of those things I learned very early on in my career to really stop that. And so I would say it for parents to just be aware, especially with your daughters. Some, some sons will do it too, but I do think with your daughters, it's something you wanna watch out for and correct them on early on so that they understand that I'm sorry is not a place to go asking for something. You're not apologizing, you're asking a question and you have every right to ask it. And that goes to lose the emotion too. You know, I think so many times we take things, the answer no personally and Tears erupt and there's so many emotions that go with the word no. But as we learn to strip away that emotion and make it a little bit more about what the issue is and less about the emotion surrounding it, you can get to a really good place where you can ask for things and feel confident in it and not fall apart when the answer is no. So how do we do that? It's, uh, it's hard when you're feeling all emotional about something. It's something that's really important to you. You've been thinking about it for so long. You're going in, you're, your heart's racing what do we do in that situation or what do we teach our kids to do? Big fan of pre-talk. Okay. Talk about it before because everything you've just said, what did you say? You're like your whole body. I mean, I'm seeing you, I'm seeing you in person now. So I can say this, your whole body like, ready to make that ask and you're getting yeah. so emotional and so freaked out about it. Talk about it before you go in. You know, I always say this about a negotiation. If you're walking into a negotiation or you're about to have a difficult conversation, have had that conversation three or four times get that adrenaline out yeah. because the adrenaline is what causes that surge of emotion every single time. It's the same thing with public speaking, really. You know, you stand up, you feel all that adrenaline come up and then you're shaky and you can't ask the question and then the tears come, yeah. right? But if you've done it 15 times and it's almost like rote memory, the emotion starts to get stripped away. Mm. And then you're just saying the words that you're ready to say and you're having the conversation in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. So you mean talking through it like with um, other people, with friends, with family members, anybody who will listen to you? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, I do it all the time whenever there's something that I'm really thinking through, whether it be I'm having an issue with my friend or I'm having an issue with my kids or even in my own family, something that I need to talk through. I talk about it. I talk about it endlessly. I always talk it to death in a way so that it feels like when I say it, there's no emotion behind it. Yeah. And I do think that's a really easy way for someone to understand that, A, there are also different perspectives. So you may say something to me and as a friend, it makes me laugh and you have never thought of it as funny. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden, like, why is that making that person laugh? Because that's how I'm responding to you. Um, but it could make someone else think, oh, you shouldn't say it like that. Yeah. So it's good to get perspectives on things. 
There's a great story in here where you um, are doing this paddle raise where you uh, tell people amounts of money and people raise their paddle if they want to just donate that much money. And you decide to start off at $100,000. Uh, I think you're raising money for veterans in here. And um, nobody raises their paddle. And it's like this excruciating, awkward 30 seconds of like hoping someone will donate $100,000 and nobody does. Yeah, Andy, you're forgetting the worst part of it. There's 6,000 people in that. <laughs> and I opened up the bidding asking if anybody will bid at $100,000. And they told me they had a bidder. And I kept waiting for him to wake up from the nap he was taking or come back from the bed. No, he was not there. Was not there and never raised his hand, never said a word. And I was just on stage squirming. But in what I said in the book, you never know. You have to ask. And more importantly, I'm still alive to tell you about it. Yep. I like to say that confidence comes from moments like that. Yeah. Right. Arguably, I take more auctions than almost any other auctioneer in the US at this point. And for me to be on stage when something like that happens at the height of my career and realize that no one is going to raise their hand in front of 6,000 people to give me the number I'm asking for, yep. that does not feel great. I'm no. going to be honest. But again, I made it through. Yeah. And when I got off stage yeah. and everyone said, oh gosh, that was so painful, the 100,000, I said, was it? <laughs> you don't have to tell me, guys. I know it was oh, painful. Oh, yes. But there you go back to that losing basketball team. Yeah, it takes nothing to right. But I love this uh, line that you said. Um, when you're absolutely positive, no one is going to raise your hand. It says, then I gave everyone a huge smile and said with a wink, "Well, you know, a girl's got to ask." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that because you do. You, if you don't ask then you're never going to get it, whatever it is. And I just think that's such a lesson in life. And yes, asking does mean sometimes you're going to get left standing there in front of thousands of people with nobody <laughs> giving you what you want. But also, um, it means sometimes uh, they're going to say yes. And um, you never know. Somehow you overheard, oh no, you found out that... Um, other people were talking about you and what they had said behind your back was that Lydia is really good at selling herself. And at first it was kind of um, hurtful, but then eventually you realized that that's a great thing. <laughs> and yeah, I thought that was just so cool um, because there is such a negative connotation behind, you know, self-promotion and people who are like always selling themselves, but then at the same time, no one else is going to do it for you. <laughs> like, um, if you're not selling yourself, then uh, who will? Exactly. And, you know, I tell that story, I mean, talk about something we've all felt, you know, and I think about feeling those feelings for them for the first time at an early age, sort of middle school, high school, you know, if you really think about the time when you learn what it's like to hear something about yourself, that's negative. Again, mm. it goes back to those core feelings that you never get rid of. It doesn't matter how old you are. And, you know, I talk about in that book, overhearing somebody, not even overhearing, someone said it on purpose at a meeting in front of an entire table of people. 
And I was so mortified. I sort of crawled back to my desk and I was having that memory as I was writing the book. And I remember thinking to myself, which I said in the book, how I wish I could go back five years and shake myself and say, that is the greatest thing that anyone has ever said to you. You should have said, thank you, instead of crawling into a ball and running away. Because the bottom line is no one can tell anyone what you're good at better than you can tell them yourselves. yourself. So don't feel scared to put yourself forward. Don't be scared to tell other people what you are good at. And I feel like since the book came out, I do it all the time. And again, I'm still alive. I'm still standing here to tell you. And I think people fear, I don't know what they fear the worst that's going to happen to them is, but it doesn't happen. You say it. So people are threatened by you and they feel like you're self-promoting too bad. Keep moving. You've got a life to live. So what, what can we do to develop more of that uh, or get better at promoting ourselves? Talk to people about what you're good at. Don't shy away from conversations in your life when someone is asking someone, you know, does anyone know someone who's really good at basketball? I keep going back to basketball, even though I'm terrible at it. I would never raise my hand because that would not be true. But let's say that you are, you know, let's say that you're good at public speaking or debate. If you're good at or you know you're good at a sport or someone that you love is, put them forward, put yourself forward. Don't feel like you cannot promote yourself or even those around you. I feel like I get as much joy from, you know, promoting my friends who don't want to promote themselves than I do from telling people what I'm good at. Because the bottom line is we all grow in this together. And I think especially when you're forming such early moments in your life, you want them to be positive. And that comes from feeling confident and saying things that make you feel like you can do anything. So if, if you know that you're good at debate or public speaking or whatever it is, and they ask for someone who's good at public speaking and someone else raises their hand because they're more confident than you, then you've just missed out on an opportunity, right? Yeah. You want to think about that every single time, if you can, in your life, about how you can move those opportunities forward. And I think we think about that with our kids, too. We want to encourage them to try and take those opportunities and raise their hand and put themselves forward. And there's an element of knowing what you're good at, and you need to sort of have a realistic assessment of what are your skills. And when something is happening that you have the skill for, um, then yeah, you need to just stand up for yourself and say, uh, hey, that's me. That's me. I mean, again, you know, what's the worst that can happen? They can say, well, we already had someone. Okay, well, keep moving, you know. You write that one element that's very important in sales is vision and um, knowing exactly what you want or having a really strong vision for the future. Um, Why is that so important? And how can we help our kids get more vision? Well, I think vision as you get older is a little bit of a different story. And what I talk about in the book is really the sort of vision for your career. But I do think for especially teenage kids, letting them know that there is a big world out there and really helping them understand what that looks like, telling them about different opportunities. You know, if you say to your child, here is what you should be doing. This is what you should be thinking about. This is the only industry that you should be in any way, shape or form engaging in. You're limiting them and you're limiting their universe. And so 
for me, vision is about allowing someone to understand that there are a number of opportunities and then to follow what works in their brain in the way that it works. Same way I manage my team. I don't try to make someone who's terrible at one thing do something 24 hours a day. I might have to practice it, but at the most part, if I see a natural tendency for someone to do something, I want to encourage that, right? And really help them. It's the same with my kids, you know? It's, they all have different attributes and I want them to understand what that allows them to do in the larger context of their life. So, you know, one thing I always stress and I stress this at the beginning is understanding finance, understanding money at a very early age. We have this conversation with our kids daily. You lose something that costs money. Your parents go to work to make that money. So when you lose something, you need to think about the implications of that action. So this is not the world that you live in where things are just handed out to you for free. You have to understand that every single thing has a cost. And now that you understand that, you will think about them differently. You know, giving them an allowance, giving them an understanding of what it takes to take money in and then what it takes to take it out. My husband and I have the greatest story about a lemonade stand with our eight-year-old that he held last year where he took out money for the lemonade mix after she came back. With and she was so upset. She's like, how could you take the money? He's like, where do you think the lemonade mix came from? You have to <laughs> and his parent, his, her grandparents were absolutely appalled. But I thought it was such a great lesson. You know, how else do you get the lemonade stand? You need to have operating costs. Yeah, right. This is what it is. We didn't even charge you rent for um, selling it in our I front mean, yard. <laughs> front, grandparents' front yard, you should be charging them rent. You're yeah. right. <laughs> we didn't get that far. Anymore. No. The lemonade two dollars for the lemonade mix took a real toll and then she <laughs> sister under a bus who had about 50 cups of free lemonade and dropped half of it on the ground but you know we do we do what we can but i do think you know again my parents and, and we've talked openly about this that we never talked about money and i had no idea what a credit card was mm. and no idea what a minimum was and all of those things were taught to me by my best friend when i literally used a credit card and just didn't pay off the minimum payment in my my early 20s for 11 months because I was just waiting for my meager bonus from work to pump in. And it was one of those just defining conversations because her parents had been so focused on finance her whole mm. life. They had been so, you know, her father worked in finance. It was just something they talked about all the time. And we just did not, you know, as I said, my dad is Southern, my mother is British, like money is not something we discussed. And we talk now about how important it is when we think about our kids to make sure that they understand what it looks like to save and what it looks like to like understand money in and money out. It's that basic, putting together a small budget with your chore money. What do you wanna save? What do you wanna do with that money if you have a little bit of extra spending money? It doesn't have to be a grand plan, but just giving them the basics. So then uh, you make them uh, pay for certain things or um, how do you teach them like the importance of money or the value of the dollar? I show them like when we go to the grocery store or something like that, you know, my daughter will always ask if she can get a pack of gum, uh, yeah. Yeah. but it's perfect. You know, it's like a dollar 25 and we know exactly where we're going. And if she wants to bring it and buy it with her money, then she can. Um, and I think that that's an important lesson, you know, to understand that if she takes it out, it's gone. She can't yeah, get it all the time, right. but if she has it and she decides to spend her money on that, then that's okay. And I, think that actually giving her the ability to do that makes her feel very empowered. I mean, she said a couple of times, well, if I want to buy it with my money, then you can't say what I can buy and what I can't. 
yes, I can, I'm your mom. But yes, within reason, the answer is you can buy whatever you would like if I say you can. <laughs> I try not to really stress the last part because we haven't hit anything illegal yet. Yeah, but, yeah, you know. yeah. She hasn't wanted anything crazy. <laughs> It'll come. Yeah, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> We are here with Lydia Finette talking about how to raise confident, motivated, successful teenagers who know how to command the room. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. If you really say to them, listen, I'm willing to listen to a point. And now that we've hit the point where I feel like I have listened and I understand the issue, it's up to you to fix. But the bottom line is, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how high someone is and what you perceive to be the stratosphere of life, everyone's exactly the same. And as my father wisely always said, everyone puts their boots on the same way in the morning. And I got this text from her mother, and so we're in our mid-20s at this point, and she said, you know, I just wanted to let you know that apparently there's going to be a lot of rain tomorrow. We're living in New York City. Uh, so you you, if you could just make sure that you don't take this bridge, like this route, take this route. And I, I was like, wait, what? And then subsequent text. Also, could you call my daughter in the morning to make sure that she gets up and doesn't miss her? <laughs> right. It's just like, what are you talking about? And then one step further, I get to the flight. I'm very tall, so I usually sit in the aisle seat. And uh, my friend is about 5'3". Therefore, to me, she can take any seat on the yeah, airplane. Yeah, right. I am 5'11", so for me, I feel like if you could give me the aisle with my legs, that would be great. And um, her mother had called and moved her and moved me, my seat, to the middle seat where she had been seated to put her on the aisle. She would be more comfortable there. And it was so confusing. The whole thing to me was so confusing. And I realized that so much of the, so much of the issues, so many of the issues rather, that she ran into her in her life were because no one had ever let her figure out how yeah, to do it on her own. Right. And so I think that is the greatest lesson that we all have. You want as a parent to you know, really help your child at every opportunity, but it's okay sometimes if they just fail or they miss that flight because they didn't wake up for their alarm. Oh, they took the wrong bridge. They took the wrong bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.